The belief that climate change will destroy the world in our lifetime is having a real psychological toll, especially on young people. In 2017, the American Psychological Society recognized climate anxiety as a real and growing condition. A perfect expression of this apocalyptic outlook is the Netflix film, Don't Look Up, a satirical disaster flick in which a comet literally destroys the earth. The film was written as an allegory for climate change. And as a sign of the state of our culture, it was recently nominated for best picture at the Academy Awards. Welcome to New Ideal Live, podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll discuss how Don't Look Up takes climate anxiety to a whole new level. I'm Keith Lockich, and with me is my colleague, Ilan Giorno. Hi, Ilan. Hey, Keith. So let's uh, jump right in. Let's start, by, let's start by talking about this growing phenomenon of climate anxiety. So Ilan, you sent me this New York Times article that mentions climate psychology as a new professional certification that psychologists can obtain. And it talks about this general phenomenon of people being so terrified from the constant barrage of climate catastrophizing that we get all the time that they're at the point of needing psychological help to cope with the anxiety. Yeah, one of the things that stands out in the article, it's, it's an article with a number of anecdotes, and it's hard to get a, a sense of how significant a phenomenon it is, but it does cite a significant survey that was published in The Lancet, a British medical journal, that covered 10,000 people in 10 countries, and they were aged 16 to 25, and the results are really astounding. Out of those 10,000 people, 45% said they worry about climate and their worry negative, negatively affects their daily life. And get this, three quarters of them said they believe, quote, the future is frightening, and 56% said, quote, is doomed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've seen other reports also talking about the effect on young people, reports of nightmares, disrupted sleep. Another survey that I saw said that one in five students said they're planning not to have children because of climate change. I, I think you know, young people are especially vulnerable to taking seriously these pronouncements that we hear all the time, that the world is gonna end by 2030 because of climate change. Now, I, I, you know, I, I don't think we wanna overstate the claim. I don't think psychologists are saying you know, that there's mass anxiety you know, that's, that's, that they're observing, but just, if, if it's something that psychologists are noting and examining more closely, and I think it's a disturbing trend. Um, unfortunately, it's not surprising that this is a trend, given the kinds of apocalyptic pronouncements we've been hearing for decades from environmentalism with no context and no, you know, and, and a, a kind of divorce from reality in terms of the claims that they're making. Yeah. I think that that's true. And I would say that the there there is something definitely going on. And I think it's it's not new. Uh, I've seen things over the last few years for a long time now that suggest this is a, a growing phenomenon. And I think that uh, there's one anecdote that I read 16 years ago now, <laughs> and it really stuck with me. And I've actually, I, I, I want to share it with you guys because it, it was not a column about climate change. It was about technology and children's access to the internet. And this was a, a columnist of the New York Times who was, um, that was his beat, technology, David Pogue. 
So he was telling a story about how his son at the time was in fourth grade and he was learning about global warming. And he was the parent uh, who was writing this was saying, well, in school, it's introduced in a way that's sensitive to children's knowledge and so on. So he, was, he approved the way it was presented in schools. But then one day his child was let loose on the internet and he found scenes from Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, which I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard about. It was a big deal when it came out. And he watched the trailer of that, this fourth grade kid. And 30 seconds after the trailer, this kid was sobbing and he turned to his dad and he said, like he's seen these before and after pictures in the trailer of what, what we're heading for. Now, this is in 2006. His son turns to his dad and says, dad, we only have 10 years to stop it. And that was in 2006. That's the sort of impact. It's obviously another anecdote, but I think it, it gives you a, a flavor of what's been brewing in society uh, uh, with the way people are barraged with the messaging around climate, science, climate change. Yeah, and we hear people today giving a deadline of 2030 to save the world. So this article was 2006, and he said we have 10 years to save the world. So 2016 was his deadline, you know, and of course the world didn't end in 2016. So the question is, you know, when 2030 comes and goes without the end of the world occurring, like 2016 did for this child, you know, will anyone remember or care that these doomsday predictions never come to pass because they were never based on reality in the first place. So we've, you know, we've done podcasts on this in the past. ARI has, has put out a lot of uh, uh, articles and talks and, and podcasts giving our perspective on the whole climate issue. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but you know, the, the part of our position is that one of the major problems we face today is that we get a completely distorted view of climate change from today's culture, the pronouncements that we hear uh, do not reflect reality. And, and, and this is, you know, part of what's behind why people are, or why young people especially have this distorted perspective of what's happening and they're, and they're experiencing anxiety and all these psychological effects. Keith, we might have lost about half of the audience at this point, because as soon as you say there's distortions in the science or you start questioning it, people get, they, they get sort of agitated because they think, oh, you're one of these people, you don't believe in the science, don't believe in the truth. So what I want to throw back at you and say is that's a very strong claim that there's distortions here. So maybe you can give us some examples of what you take to be uh, uh, problems in the way this is communicated and what would it look like to treat the science seriously? Yeah, so again, we're not going to have a whole launch, a whole discussion of climate science here, but I, I, I wanted to what I wanted to point to is some of the ways in which the information that we hear gets is distorted and is not presented um, accurately in a way that captures the full context of what's happening. So just, I have one little anecdote that I wanted to, um, wanted to present here. So just, it's sort of, it's one little uh, example or factoid or a little nugget of information. So the, the climate activist, Bill McKibben, so he's a longtime climate alarmist. He wrote a book called The End of Nature, and he's a, he's a very prominent environmentalist who's been pushing talking about the climate change issue for years. Um, there's one little number that he likes to drop into his articles, his talks, you know, that uh, is kind of a little factoid that I think is, is um, it's, a, it's one small concrete example, but I think it illustrates the wider phenomenon that we're talking about here. So, 
the the factoid and I, the factoid that he likes to use, <clears throat> and I'm going to quote from an article. He says <clears throat> he points out that the extra heat. We, this is a quote. Quote: The extra heat we trap near the planet every day is equivalent to the heat from 400,000 bombs the size of the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. Unquote. So he's saying the 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 effect that our carbon dioxide emissions are having is that they're trapping extra heat not in, into the atmosphere of the earth. And the, and the amount of extra heat that we trap every day, he's saying is equivalent to 400,000 Hiroshima's, basically. Now, <clears throat> I think this is exactly the kind of statement that people find terrifying and that young people hear this, I mean, who wouldn't be terrified? Climate change is like 400,000 nuclear bombs going off every day. You know, I mean, a, a comet slamming into the earth would be, you know, like a garden party compared to that, right? It's, it's, it seems like. So, but, so the reason I wanna bring this up though is because the, there's no context that we're given to put this number into perspective. I mentioned this to my kids and you know, my son's first reaction was, no, that can't be right. So the fact is the number actually is roughly accurate. It is true, this, this little you know, 400,000 Hiroshima, Hiroshima's being the extra heat that we trap every day uh, as a result of carbon dioxide emissions and so on, that's an accurate number. But it's a half truth because there's no context to put it in perspective. So let's, so let's give it some context. Let's put this into perspective. And let's ask the question, how much energy, heat energy, does the Earth receive every day from the sunlight that shines on its surface? So I'm going to throw this to you, Ilan. We didn't talk about this in advance. So if you had to guess, and you had to put it in terms of, you know, how many Hiroshima bombs per day worth of energy do you think we get just from the sunlight shining on the Earth? Um, so remember, he's saying, he's saying climate change is causing yeah. 400,000 per day. So what do you think? Maybe 500,000? I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. So, <clears throat> so uh, the amount of energy that we get in the atmosphere just from sunlight shining on the Earth, 476 million Hiroshima's per day. Okay. So... So I, I think that gives you a little perspective, right? How scary does Bill McKibben's number seem now? Like we don't, we don't view sunshine as nuclear Armageddon, right? But this is the impression that McKibben wants to create for us about climate change. And it's completely dishonest. Um, and I think the, the reason this kind of half-truth works is because, you know, we don't have we're not used to thinking about things on the scale of the entire earth. People aren't used to thinking in terms of heat energy and physics concepts like that. So he can pull a statistical sleight of hand like this, um, throw a number like that at his readers with no context or no perspective, no way of judging what that number even means. And it's a complete distortion. It's a complete distortion of reality. Uh, and it's it's I I think it's really dishonest of someone like McKibben to throw a, a number like that out. Um, you know, more broadly, uh, just to give another example, you know, we see media reports about climate disasters all the time, <clears throat> and uh, I think it would be 
it would be surprising if people didn't draw the conclusion that things are getting worse and worse every year. You know, if you were to ask people how many, if, if you were to ask someone, how many people do you think, you know, die every year from climate related disasters? And is that number getting better or is it getting worse? I think most people would say the answer is obvious. Obviously things must be getting worse. You know, climate change is destroying the planet. So, but, but if you look at the data and you look at the numbers, um, maybe we could put this graph up. Um, so the truth is exactly the opposite. Climate related deaths are a tiny fraction of what they are or what they were a century ago. So something it's, it's dropped by like 98%. And the reason for that, the point here is that industrial development powered by fossil fuels has made it possible for us to build safer structures, advanced warning systems, and all the infrastructure that we need to keep us safe and prevent, prevent disasters from harming us. People have become way less at risk from climate disasters because of our use of fossil fuels. But this, <clears throat> this um, benefit that we get from using fossil fuels never gets discussed. All that gets discussed is the, the claim that it's causing climate change and, the, and this is, apparently is gonna, allegedly is gonna make, uh, is gonna destroy the earth and make everything worse. So, so these are the kinds of examples that I'm talking about. And you, know, you could multiply these kinds of examples ad infinitum. I, I think the thing I really wanna stress here is that our culture is not having an honest conversation about climate and energy. It's the, the, the conversation is completely distorted, dominated by distortions, half-truths, and lies, um, like the kinds of examples that I just gave. Yeah, and if I can just throw something in there. So I mentioned the example of an inconvenient truth. That's Al Gore. He won a, a Nobel Prize for putting out that movie and being a spokesman on this issue. And Bill McKibben, for people who don't follow his career, uh, he, the article you were quoting from was in the New Yorker. So he's not a fringe figure. I mean, as far as, far as I understand, he's well in the mainstream of setting the trends and, and uh, shaping people's views. Can I just jump in there? Because whenever people mention Al Gore's Nobel Prize, I, I have to stress it was the Peace Prize. So Al oh, Gore and me. the International and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm -hmm. the UN's body, they, they were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their work on climate. This was not a scientific prize, but people like to conveniently, there's a, there's a convenient truth that people uh, like to drop. <laughs> Someday we should have a conversation about the Nobel Peace Prizes and just the Nobel Prizes in general, because I think they're an yeah. interesting cultural uh, syndicate. Anyway, so let's talk about, yeah. let's move to Don't Look Up and get into that a little and just to set the context i mean it's it's everywhere i'm sure a lot of people listening now have either watched it or are planning to watch it as you said it was a huge hit it still is a huge hit for netflix uh netflix original and it's up for a number of academy awards including best picture and best original screenplay so not the minor ones not makeup and you know some of the kind of technical things but center center of the page this is a, the message of the movie that's what's being celebrated and we're going to have, it's unavoidable to, to give spoilers for the movie. So if you haven't watched it, pause, go watch the movie, come back and listen uh, to this conversation if you don't want to have us talk about it. But I mean, it's been covered so widely in the press. I'm, I'm surprised if, if, no, if, if there are people who still don't know what the story is about. If I think I'll jump in and give a bit of the context here. Okay. Uh, which is, I think you're back. But so we, so the, the, 
premise of the movie is two astronomers discover that there's an enormous comet that's heading on a collision course with the Earth. It's going to be like an extinction level event. And the people of Earth have six months to do something about it, or it's literally going to be the end of the world. Um, you, did you want to pick up there, Alan? Are you back? Yeah, the, the story is meant as an allegory for climate change and the disaster that is um, said to be heading toward us. And, and it's, as you said earlier, it's a broad satire and it's not skewering only political people and political responses to the disaster, but also media and journalism and the whole culture around communications in our society. And then more broadly, um, the way our society has become superficially obsessed with obsessed with superficial things and, and ignoring more important issues so the, there's a whole sub story about how we're obsessed with social media and the lives of celebrities so we're not going to get into all the, the aspects of the the satire but just to get that on the table and the other thing is this is not a movie review we're not, we're not going to hear talk about the aesthetic aspects of this movie we're going to treat it chiefly as a commentary about the climate issue and as a, we're going to evaluate its theme, its sort of its core message as a work of a cultural product. And um, I, I mean, I don't know what your reaction to the movie was. I found it fascinating. I didn't enjoy it, <laughs> but I found it fascinating. I had so many things to say about it. I wish we could make it the focus, but did you want to add a comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I... I, I mean, just to acknowledge, like, I did find the film entertaining. I, you know, I don't know if, whether it was Oscar-worthy. It certainly had a stellar cast. I mean, you know, you got the major A-list actors uh, um, signing up, and I think that is telling in and of itself. Um, you know, that that uh, you've got major star. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, somebody who who's always been sort of a climate activist. You've got all these people. Just the the it reflects the standing of this issue in the culture that all these stellar A-list actors would sign up to join this film. Um, you know, I, I also think it's worth mentioning that, um, and this is something we're not gonna go into in great detail. So I just wanna mention it briefly at the beginning. I, my understanding is that the filmmakers started writing the screenplay before the pandemic and, and they explicitly intended it as an allegory about climate change. Um, you know, that's what they've said explicitly in interviews. But I think they, they said that as they watched the pandemic unfold, elements of the way our culture and politicians responded to the pandemic also kind of made their way in the film. And in some ways, in my view, as a satire parodying the pandemic response, I actually found the film more interesting and more insightful, you know, and more, uh, there's, there's more, uh, more to get out of it from that perspective than, you know, because the whole the whole idea that climate change is like a comet hitting the earth is just ridiculous. So, you know, so these other things are not our focus today. And again, we're not film critics. We're not here to review the film. But I thought it was worth mentioning these things up front just to kind of get them out of the way. And what, what we're focusing on, though, is the intention of of using this as an allegory for climate change. So. Sure. So let's talk a bit about the the core of what is being satirized and the targets of the movie, of the screenwriters and what they're trying to poke at. And I think the main joke that where the satire when it becomes parodic is that there's a planet destroying comet heading toward us on a, on a definite timeline and it's only six months, it's not 
distant in the future. It's not future generations who will suffer. It's everyone alive in the present, but nobody cares. No, no one in power, no one in significant standing cares. And the scientists who discovered it have to struggle to convince the politicians, particularly the president and all her staff, that this is a thing and that this matters and that it's not to be sneered at or, or scoffed at. And then there's a whole struggle to get through the media landscape and get the message out to a broader population. So there's, those are the main targets of the, the, uh, the satires that the, the politicians don't wanna hear about it. It's gonna, it's gonna be problematic and then the media. And then just to dig in a bit about this, it, it really, I think is meant to map on to, if you take it as a climate allegory, then think about the politicians and how that translates. So when the, the uh, finally the scientists after being made to wait hours and hours and hours to, to, for a, an audience with the, with the president, now this is the six months and days left and the world's gonna end and they're keeping these guys waiting in the, in the, in the hallway with, with Cheetos and water bottles. <laughs> Uh, and finally, they get an audience with the, pre the president and the president is, well, this is her main concern is the midterms and what's this going to do? And she's struggling with a, a crisis concerning her nominee for the Supreme Court, who's unqualified. And that's reoccupying her attention. And this whole thing of, of a planet destroying comet. Well, let's, as she says in the movie, and you might have seen this in some of the clips, let's sit and assess. Let's come back to it. Let's, let's see what happens and figure out what we want to do. And here's like a telling little anecdote, uh, a telling uh, um, detail from the way the film was made. When the scientists try to impress upon the, the president, this is a certainty, this is going to happen. It's 100% it's going to happen. The politicians are always looking, are you sure it's 100%? Is it, well, it's 98.7. Oh, okay, so it's not 100%. That's better. We can, we can live with that. Can we tone it down to 70%? Okay, it's 70%, let's go with that. And then one of the scientists, the one who discovers it said, well, that's not at all the same thing. 70% likelihood versus 90, not whatever, 99% is very different. And why aren't you getting this? And their, their whole attitude towards the truth is, is contemptuous. They don't care about what's true and false. They, what they care about is what's gonna, what can they say to, to not harm their political chances in the next few weeks? Uh, so so that there's an attack on the, the politicians and there's a lot more to say about how that comes through. Then the media, just one quick thing about the media. So that one of the recourses that the scientists take when they, they see that there isn't really anyone listening to them in the Oval Office, they try to leak the story. And so they go to what is in effect the New York Times, but it's not called that in the movie. And they're all over it. Yeah, we'll take this. This is interesting. We, we're going to be the breakthrough forum for you. And they leak the story, they publish it. And then what happens next is that the story doesn't perform well. It doesn't get a lot of clicks. It doesn't do well on social media. Other stories swamp it completely. The stories of celebrities breaking up and so on. And so what you get is the newspaper backing away from the commitment to the truth. And, and then further complicating this is the we find out that one of the government scientists dismisses it. And so that authority gets to Trump uh, the truth. And so in, in effect, the newspaper isn't interested in then th there's still further struggle. But what you get is the news media is corrupt. The politicians are corrupt. They're not interested in the truth. Uh, and then just finally and briefly, and we'll come back to this, another major target is the business world, particularly um, businesses that have a lot of political influence. And that's a major plot point. Uh, we can get into that 
in in more discussion. But major organs of society, from the Oval Office to the to the news media in various forms, and business, they're all ignoring the truth. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested. They, they have ulterior motives, all of which are are banal, corrupt, and dishonest in fundamental ways. So that, that gives you a flavor of what this is trying to satirize. So I, I, having said that, let's talk a bit about how this cashes out in the context of the, the points you were raising earlier, Keith, about how the, our existing discussions about climate are already distorted and dishonest. And the movie makers, as I read this, they're basically absorbing everything that's in the mainstream. And turning that into a script that reflects those kinds of ideas. So let's talk about um, some of the takeaways there. Uh, I mean, I think the major one is that nobody cares about the truth. Science is swamped by short range considerations in politics, re-election, social media, clicks, and just the, the, the um, myopia of general people whose interests are really narrow and nobody's really nobody's telling the truth. Nobody's speaking up. That's one of the takeaways. I think you, it's hard to miss that one in the movie. It's not subtle at all. And my just one thought about that before I hand it back to you, Keith, to see your thoughts is when I reflect on this, I think if the movie's criticism, one of its criticisms is that they think the media and others in the culture who are in a position to speak about this issue are not saying enough about climate change. If the satire is that they're dismissing it and not concerned with, this, with the, the truth and so forth, what would it look like for them to be talking about it more and taking it seriously? Because my experience is it's everywhere, it's unavoidable and it's deafening, it's in your face. You can't go to the grocery store, you can't turn on the radio, you can't watch any media without confronting it. So there's something really weird about that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that perspective also, like Greta Thunberg has talked about, you know, learning about climate change and then wondering why people weren't talking about it more. You know, she's looking around and she doesn't see anybody talking about it or doing anything about it. You know, and I have the same reaction that you as you hear about it. All you hear all the time is how the world is going to end from climate change. So what does what what you know, what is she looking at? But it's 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 a different perspective, you know, and the, and, and the worst part of it is what it means to quote, do something about climate change according to our culture and our culture's intellectual leaders is you know, essentially to cut off completely all the forms of energy production that actually work in producing reliable, affordable, abundant energy. Um, it reminds me of just of, of, of uh, something that I noticed, I wrote a short article about it during the pandemic. It was a story that got a little bit of attention during the pandemic that, that was related to the fact that um, the worldwide carbon emissions dropped dramatically in 2020 compared to 2019. So there was this huge drop in carbon emissions. And there were some news sites that were sort of hailing this as good news. But, you know, the fact is the, the reason it happened is because of the total shutdown of the global economy that happened during the pandemic. So everybody stopped going to work. Nobody was driving. You know, we were all locked down. And yeah, so that there was a drop in carbon emissions. So I think, you know, the real story here is the, all these constant cries that we need to do something about climate change. The, the, the real story here is that the, it's, the, it's the proposed response to climate change that would be like a comet destroying the earth. 
it's, it's the abundant, affordable, reliable energy provided by fossil fuels and also, and, and also nuclear power. That's what has made it possible for human beings to flourish on this planet. But, it, but what our culture means about, you know, when, they, when we talk about doing something about climate change is eliminating all of that. And that is what would really be destructive of, of our ability to, you know, live and flourish on this planet. So um, it's, this is part of the dropped context and the distorted picture that we get about the issue. And, and this obviously this is not something that the movie uh, addresses at all. So just to take another kind of takeaway from someone watching the movie, what would they get and how would that impact them? How does it connect with this issue of climate anxiety? One of the things you, you see in the story is that early on, there seems to be a reasonable plan and a, and a, and a way to try to fix the problem. Like there is a plan, it's, it's put into effect, but the opportunity early on is squandered. And the reason it's squandered is that the short-sighted, the criminally short-sighted politicians and the greedy businessmen and the greedy politicians who are in cahoots with them, because of their pursuit of profits, they're willing to sacrifice and risk lives and they squander the chance to do something early, do something early, and it doesn't work. And what we end up with is there's no fallback plan, there's one shot and an uh, it, it turns out that, well, apocalypse is now within sight. We can actually see the comet coming towards us. It's, there's no escape from it. And this whole thing about we had a chance early on, if we had only done something that we need to act to, all of this is just a channeling of the conventional view, that, as you were saying earlier, that's distorted and in many cases dishonest about what the nature of the problem really is and what it would look like to, to address whatever problems you might think there really are. And I mean, there, there could be problems. There are such things as smog and you might find ways to deal with that. And there, there's other kinds of things that are legitimate to consider, but none of the solutions that people talk about and the timelines for doing them have any bearing on actual solutions. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and the, this, I think the point you're bringing out here is that this is another way in which the movie distorts the issue. What it means to do something about the comet is to send up nuclear you know, an, a fleet of nuclear bombs to blow it up so that it doesn't smash into the earth as a giant 10 kilometer wide missile, basically. Uh, but what effect would that have on people trying to live their lives on earth? Very little. Whereas what it would mean to do, so, as I was saying before, what it would mean to do something, uh, quote unquote, about climate change would, would literally destroy people's ability to flourish and live on earth because it would by just by destroying our ability to use the the energy that basically keeps us all going so um so so one way in which this connects to our our topic of anxiety and how people are starting to feel like the world is ending and there's sort of psychological after uh, consequences for that is that if you map this onto the climate issue, if you take the, just transfer the comet to the climate and you can see how anyone who's responsible, sensible, concerned about their lives and their children, how this would really engender anxiety in them. Because what can you do if the people who have the power are completely irresponsible, unconcerned with the truth or facts? And these forces, they're, being irresponsible, they're obviously not doing what needs to be done 
and it's left to individuals. And what can individuals actually do? And here you get into some of the paradoxes or, or impossible situations. And you've written about this. I remember there was an article you wrote about, I think the people having a lot of anxiety about using disposable diapers or grocery bags and so forth. And, and this, it's a real thing that people face. And I just wanna share an example of this from the New York Times story that we talked about earlier about this whole new area in psychology where people are getting help because they have what is identified as climate related anxiety. And so here's the story of a, a young mother in her late thirties. Uh, she's at the grocery store and she's, she's gonna buy a bag of nuts, but she's, she's panicked or she has this experience because she feels conflicted. I mean, she's busy and she wants to buy these nuts because it's part of her grocery list but they're packaged in plastic. And what kind of impact will that have on the planet? And she's just standing there in the aisle, gnawed by anxiety. And as she put, as the article puts it, quote, she longed, really longed to make less of a mark on the earth. But she also had baby and diapers and a full-time job and a five-year-old who wanted snacks. And these conflicting forces were slowly closing in on her like a set of jaws. Now, if, if that's the experience a lot of people are having or some people are having, you can see, well, no one else is going to do anything. It's up to me to make these small changes, these small sacrifices in my life to have it. But what is it actually going to do? And look at, look at the negative outcomes for me. Like, I, I need this. I need these groceries. My, I have a whole family to deal with. So you can see how this whole atmosphere, of the way we're pushed to minimize our carbon footprint, quote unquote, and, and just to you know, consider the, the planet as the first thing in your mind when you go to the grocery store, you know, when you fill up your tank and so forth. So this is a, a, um, something we're breathing in and out in the atmosphere. Yeah, and, and again, I think young people are especially prone, susceptible to being influenced by these things and, being, and, and susceptible to the fact that we don't get the full context. All they hear is, are these, factoids and claims that the earth is you know ending in 10 years and they don't get the full context to see that that's not true okay so one other point that i think leaps off the screen when you watch this movie and it's important because it, it's i think it's telling of what is the message of the movie and how it connects to the the allegory i think the point of the satire like a lot of what we hear about the climate is to induce guilt and anxiety by reproaching everyone for their failures. So all the way from the Oval Office down to the people who end up in a riot because they discover what's happening and that they've been closing their eyes to the problem and now they're panicking. This, ha this happens in the movie. And the part of this, the, the mechanism in the movie in this, uh, is that the satire has a kind of, if the shoe fits, wear it approach. So if you're the kind of person who's like the politicians and corrupt and you're insisting, you're telling everyone, don't look up, don't look at the, that, that's the point of the title, right? Don't look up at the comment. It's not there. It's, let's ignore it. We can fix this through other means. You're part of the problem destroying the earth because you're seeking profits or as, as the, sci the, the scientist who discovered it, Kate, she goes home and she, her parents won't let her in because they don't want the politics. And what they tell her is, we're for the jobs the comet is going to create. And you, you know who they're supposed to be satirizing, right? There are people who are, who are so stupid that they think jobs are more important than climate future. So, or are you part of this, the anti-scientific uh, movement who are telling you don't look up? Are you the kind who is rationalizing 
you know, there's going to be upsides to this, you know, going to be jobs, there's going to be profits. Are you the kind of person who, as many of them are depicted in the movie, is completely checked out, your, your whole life revolves around the escapades of celebrities and movie stars, and you, you don't even have the, the inkling of the problem we're dealing with, and you're being irresponsible in the way you're living because you're contributing to it. So if yes on any of these or many of the other targets in the movie, shame on you. That's the message. Shame on you. You're, you're not doing enough. You're not saying enough. And you should feel guilt and you should feel the sting of humiliation for all of that. And coming away from the movie, I think that's one of the powerful things the movie can do is really dramatize. You should feel bad about your role in this. I had the, if there is the reaction of well, this, I've heard this before. This is not new. It's not original for sure. It's just everywhere in the culture. And the, the one thing that echoed in my ears was one of the many statements we've heard from Greta Thunberg. And I think this really encapsulates it. I want to, we want to play a, a quick clip of her putting this forward. And I think this is what the movie is trying to convey, I think, is captured in, in the next 90 seconds by Greta Thunberg in exactly the way I think they want you to take it. So let's, let's play that. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency, but no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. So she's admonishing the world not to look away, and the movie is admonishing the world, the, the people who would, don't, who would have you not look up. So I think the, the, the thrust there is really identical, different, more, different forms for the same kind of theme. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, just the idea, Again, the the idea that for 30 years the science has been unequivocal. This is again, this is a reflection of the way in which the we have not had an honest discussion about the scientific issues. And you know, there's recently there's been a a, a, a whole set of books that have been coming out. You know, that this is over the years there have been scientists who who've uh, challenged you know the the perspective that climate change is this world ending catastrophe. And the, 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 the 
whole thrust of the culture is to silence those voices and to not let the that that not let that message be heard, and it continues to this day. And this is what uh, you know. This is what she's sort of cashing in on. Um, with that in mind, I wanted to take up. We got a super chat question um, that's relevant to this exact point. This is a super chat from Henry who says, "If the quote climate apocalypse is exaggerated." but man-made climate change is still real. What does ARI recommend doing? Either way, greenhouse gas emission at our current rate will harm human life. So, it's, so the, that claim is precisely the thing that is lacking context. And we're gonna share some resources at the end, but the idea that, um, the idea that you can look at the effect, the, 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 the purportedly negative effects of human greenhouse gas emissions without looking at the benefits that they bring us and the ways in which they improve human life, make it possible for us to build resiliency and protection against climate and just make it possible for us to live a human life in, in, in the modern world. The idea that, it's, that, that <clears throat> greenhouse gas emissions will harm human life, that I think in itself is a, is a premise that needs to be challenged. Um, and, you know, I, again, I said, we'll have some resources at the end uh, that we can point you to um, where, where you can get more information on that. Uh, somebody else on Zoom asked a question, is there a list of references one can go to? Yeah, yeah I just want to follow up on that and then we can get to the Zoom. So let me follow up and, and sort of take that person's question further and, and ask you. So let's say that we don't know, or it, it can't be established what the exact causality is, but there is warming and it's going to cause certain kinds of effects. One is, what do you think about, what would it take to cope with them? And what are solutions to some of the, the kind of problems like, is air pollution going to get worse? Are we going to deal, how would we, what, what would it look like to solve some of these, if there are real problems? I mean, just to give one example, the, like the issue of wildfires, you know, the claim that wildfires are on the rise because of, uh, because of climate change. I mean, one of the things I think has, that has emerged and has become very clear in the last decades is that our management of forests has been a disaster and we've allowed, uh, this is something I've written about, um, our, I, 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 uh, we, we've the, the graph that we showed was a link to a, a website from Alex Epstein. I think we might as well mention him at this point. He's so Alex, for those of you who don't know him, he's a former colleague of ours at ARI. He went off to start his own organization and he's a leading expert. He's been a very prominent voice on climate and energy. And um, he has a website called Energy Talking Points. That's one resource that I wanted to send people to. Um, and so, um, you know, he has a lot of information on issues like this, but the, the, uh, the, um, so he, he's written on this, I've written on this issue as well, but the, with the idea that we allow these, the, uh, fuel loads in forests to grow the way they do without, without trimming them back, without doing controlled burns, without managing, this is the reason why we have these crazy wildfires every season. It's not, it's not, it's not because of the, uh, changes in the climate, the, the, the leading causes that we're not managing them properly. And so there's, there's, there are things that we can be doing to mitigate these problems instead of just blaming it on the climate. And, and you could, again, you could multiply these kinds of examples ad infinitum. You know, if you, you know, we could go, go down the entire list of, there's a whole litany of, uh, of 
catastrophic effects that we supposedly face. And each one of them, you could, there, there are, you know, there are uh, solutions that don't involve shutting down the world's economy by cutting off our ability to, to have energy. Um, so, yeah, so let's go back to the question you started uh, reading out. Well, actually, that I, I, I uh, it was a. Is there a list of references you can go to research the data that we showed in the graph? And so that so, Alex's Alex's website is a good starting point for that. Um, I should have mentioned we actually borrowed. I borrowed that graph from his uh, Energy Talking Points website. So we'll we'll have some links at the end, but. Uh, um, I, I want to take us in a slightly different direction. I think we have a few minutes more to get one other topic that I don't think we can do full justice to, but I think we, we have to put it on the table. And one of, one of the things that is distinctive about the movie and its message is it's a very brazen attack on business. And the portrayal of business leaders is, I think, really unjust and even even though so the, my view is not that all business people are good but that uh, there are good business people and there are there are ones that are corrupt and that seek favors and un, unearned uh, uh, kickbacks from government and so-called crony capitalism that is a real phenomenon they certainly don't deserve that kind of uh, those benefits but there are productive business people and innovators in all fields and the movie just smears them all as uh, uh, power seekers and uh, profit driven to the point of criminal irresponsibility. And so I think it's worth just bringing out that point. And I think you had a thought about um, the way in which the role of business comes into this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as a plot point, so the president is finally convinced to try to destroy the comet and they and they're actually launched this whole fleet of nuclear weapons to go and destroy it. And at the last minute, they abort the mission. Why? Because this tech billionaire has identified that the comet that's hurtling toward Earth is rich with like quadrillions of dollars worth of rare earth minerals and all this sort of thing. And so instead of just blowing it up, we need to somehow, you know, break it up into pieces and, and have it drop on the Earth so that we can extract the mineral value out of this comet. And then, um, you know, and the way this unfolds is that the tech billionaire's science and his his uh, rocket mission is a complete failure, and and you know the comet ends up hitting the Earth. But the idea, so this is meant to capture the claim that it's it's greedy, it's the it's the short-sighted greed of large corporations that's responsible for destroying the Earth. You know, that's that's the idea. And, um, you know, so it's not surprising that Hollywood once again is, is um, distorting and attacking, you know, distorting the, uh, the true perspective on what business and what billionaires, the value they create and what kind of things they bring to the world. Um, but what's interesting is, is there's a way in which they try to, this is, this is an attempt to deflect uh, the idea that there's any individual responsibility here. If, if it's all the big corporations that are the villains, that's part of the message that they're trying to get across. And I, I, there's an interesting argument that I hear. So Michael Mann, 
Um, he's the guy that came up with that hockey stick graph you know, that was famous, you know, the idea that, uh, that climate change is suddenly changing um, you know, the, the, the climate relative to what it's been like for the last 10,000 years. Um, <clears throat> so he's argued that even the point of emphasizing that there are things that individuals can do, like changing personal consumption habits and so on, is basically a ploy on the part of fossil fuel companies to shift the blame and deflect policy away from targeting them as companies. I mean, he's even said that, you know, the whole idea of, of the carbon footprint, where we can each calculate how much we as an individual contribute to climate change. This is just sort of a corporate ploy that was in, invented by British Petroleum, you know, to affect this kind of mindset, to, to say, to, to get people to say, look, it's not the fossil fuel companies, it's individuals. You have to change your consumption. You have to change your habits. So it's just part of this, uh, um, the, this, this idea that, you know, businesses that pursue profit, uh, somehow that is short-sighted and self-destructive. And, and, you know, and, and the reductio ad absurdum of it is we're just going to let greed, uh, uh, out of greed, we're just going to let a comet destroy the air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we could do a whole separate conversation just about the movies, other plot lines, and how that illustrates the point that greed and, and the desire for self-interest in, in more general terms is so destructive. And I think that goes to a, a core of what's going on in this story. So maybe, you know, I'd be interested in, in slightly wider perspective on this, Keith, because I, I, I wanted to talk about this movie in connection with climate because I think it's it's a cultural artifact. It tells us where we are on, in certain issues, where we are in certain trends. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, climate change has become the major issue of the environmental movement. Um, and I think the, you know, decades ago, environmentalism was sort of an ism. People could recognize it as, a, as an ideological movement and it had different issues that it was talking about. Uh, I think climate change has become so mainstream and so conventional in, in the way people think about it, it's difficult to recognize that it actually is a perspective, uh, you know, based on a certain worldview. Um, and it's interesting to go back. So in 1970, Ayn Rand uh, gave a talk that became an article on environmentalism called the anti-industrial revolution. And in, in her analysis, it's, this is none of the issues that environmentalists raise fundamentally are really about the science. Though you know, they're, they're wrapped up in scientific questions, they're wrapped up in scientific data, but fundamentally it's a, it's a moral ideological issue. Um, and it's the, the core idea behind the whole environmental perspective is the idea of subordinating human life to wild, untouched, pristine nature. Um, and so the, it's the question of, do you take a, the, a human perspective that our goal should be to, you know, our, the, the, the focus of our, if we're thinking about human beings and our relationship to nature, the focus should be on how do we create a world that's optimal for human beings to live and flourish and, and be happy. But that's not the environmental perspective. The environmental perspective is how do we prevent human beings from having any impact on nature and from, for, from um, you know, disrupting 
the pristine, untouched character of nature. And so her, in her analysis, what she ultimately gets to in this discussion is that the whole ideology is predicated on sacrifice and guilt and fear and the kinds of anxieties that uh, you know, we're, we're talking about today. This is, this is the point of the movement is to induce these kinds of emotions. Um, so she, had this, she has this great quote from towards the end of the article that I just wanted to share here that this is the basic perspective that we get. In, in confrontation with, their na with nature, their plea is leave well enough alone. Do not upset the balance of nature. Do not disturb the birds, the forests, the swamps, the oceans. Do not rock the boat or even build one. Don't experiment. Do not venture out. What was good enough for our anthropoid ancestors is good enough for us. Adjust to the winds, the rains, the man-eating tigers, the malarial mosquitoes, the tsetse flies. Do not rebel, do not anger the unknowable demons who rule it all. Um, this is the kind of worldview that we get, uh, that we're tampering with these great forces of nature and, and by doing so, we're gonna destroy, destroy the planet and what we should do is tower in fear and anxiety over, over that phenomenon. Um, Yeah. So, well, let's, let's, we've got some questions. I don't think we're going to get to them here, but we can invite people to join us in a few minutes when we close here, we'll be hopping over into clubhouse. If you want to ask us more questions, talk more about the implications of the movie, it's standing in the culture and so on. We'd love to have you join us. We'll be there in, as soon as we hang up here, we'll move there. Um, so Keith, did you have some, you, you mentioned earlier, some resources, maybe we should walk through some of those. Yeah, uh, so I just mentioned Ayn Rand's article, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, that's available on our website. Um, there's a link there that you can get to. Um, I think this is a must read uh, to get Ayn Rand's perspective on what was then called the ecology movement. And again, it was written, you know, 50 years ago, but, but it's super prescient about the nature and goals of the environmentalist movement. I think everything she talked about then you can see playing out uh, in the last half century. Um, I, one thing that came out a little bit in the discussion here was my claim that, uh, that as a result of industrial capitalism powered by fossil fuels, we're far safer from climate than we've ever been in human history. So this article uh, that we have a link to here, um, this is a discussion that I have about this. You know, I think it's also worth, uh, we didn't uh, put a link here or, or an image, but Alex Epstein who we, who we mentioned earlier, he has a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels that also goes into this issue a little bit. And I wanted to take this opportunity to publicize Alex uh, Epstein's, he has a, he has a forthcoming book um, called Fossil Future. That's the publication date is April 19th, but you can pre-order it today so that you get it in time for Earth Day, uh, which is April 22nd. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but I know that uh, my our colleague Ankar Gatte worked with Alex um, in, in Alex's writing of this book. So, you know, I think uh, we can expect that it's going to be really a really valuable contribution to the debate. And uh, if people pre-order it, that'll help, you know, make sure there's enough copies uh, for people to, uh, for the, 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 the publisher will print enough copies, you know, so that it doesn't uh, risk going out of print. So, yeah, so check out those resources. And next week's show, uh, the topic and presenters are still TBD. There was a mishap with a cat that uh, 
uh, we had to change the schedule a little bit. So I <laughs> uh, might hear more about that in the future, but we'll be back at the usual time with something interesting like we always do. And I'll just wrap up with our usual remarks that if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the channel on YouTube, click the bell for notifications. We're gonna go live. If you're watching the recording, please like, comment, share, help us attract new viewers. Um, consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook or one of our other platforms. If you have questions or comments about today's episode or suggestions for future episodes, send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We definitely read all of them. We reply to most of them. And we've definitely done shows based on suggestions that people have sent us. So uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And I think we'll draw a line there and we'll hop over to anyone who wants to continue talking about Don't Look Up or any of the things we discussed. Come join us on Clubhouse and we'll see you in a few minutes. Thanks, Elon. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.